All right, guys. I hate to interrupt it, but I'm going to. Oh, wow, they shut the lights off on you and everything. Best Thanksgiving dish. I'm, a couple years ago, I, I started obsessively just trying to figure out how to cook a perfect Thanksgiving turkey. So I'm like into cooking Thanksgiving meal. We, we're having some salt students over to our house and calling it Advanced Giving. And we literally, they, they named it after me. My last name's Vance. If I haven't met you guys, my name's Mark Vance. I am up here from Ames, Iowa. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Normally, I don't get that reaction among Minnesotans as an Iowan. It's kind of like, like Iowans, we hate Nebraska. Do people, do people in Minnesota, how do you feel about people from Nebraska? No, no, no. Have you ever met anybody from Nebraska? They're terrible, all of them. And, and if you're from Nebraska, I'm sorry, but we're mortal enemies. I'm from Iowa. It's the way it works. No, I'm kidding. I like Nebraskans plenty. So I'm the lead pastor at Cornerstone Church in Ames. I was the Salt Company director uh, when Abby was up there as a student at Iowa State University. And this, uh, this church, Salt City and Salt Company here in the Twin Cities, kind of feel like home for me. So many of the people that I had the chance to be part of their life are up here now doing incredible gospel ministry in an incredible place. And so it's a really deep privilege for me to be here. Now, we're going to talk tonight at Daniel chapter 4 and 5, so get a Bible, you can go there. And really, what we're talking about is humility and pride. If there's one phrase I want you to remember from the whole evening, it's this one. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It matters to me because all throughout my life, here's just a confession to start out, I'm not like a humble guy on the stage teaching about humility. I'm a guy who struggled his whole life with pride and selfish ambition. I mean, literally my whole life. Guys, I failed elementary school PE five years in a row. You're thinking, how did you do that, Mark? Here's how. I failed. They wrote the same thing on my report card every single year for five years. This was the phrase they wrote. Mrs. Corey wrote this phrase, Mark is too competitive with the other children. <laughs> I failed P.E. for a competitive instinct as a first grader and a second grader and a third grader. After my fourth grade year, I went to Mrs. Corey and I said, I don't understand why you keep failing me. And she goes, well, Mark, I write the same thing every year. You're too competitive with the other children. And I go, why would you want me to let the losers win? And she goes, you're failed again. And I'm like, fine, whatever. I'll beat you too. So I, I, I had a problem. I had a problem. And that, that kind of like ambition drive inside of me, it, it was tracked with me for many years. When I first started dating uh, the gal who now, Crystal, who is my wife of 20 years this December, you might be thinking, wow, you don't look that old. That's right. We got married when we were 14. We're from Iowa. You can do that type of crap down there. Deal with it. No, I'm 40. Get, calm down, all right? Which you're still like, that's still super young. I'm like, I know. Iowa. We don't have a lot to do down there. We're raising corn, getting married. That's what you do. So my wife and I started dating in high school, and she was on the tennis team. So she's like, you know, we're like, what should we do for fun? Oh, we'll play tennis, you know. And after a while of just gently lobbing the ball back and forth like a couple of losers, I just start smashing 
to her and just absolutely eviscerate my wife on one of our first stage plans, which is not the way to impress a woman. I figured out she didn't care that much that I was winning every point. That was not impressive to her. Competitive instinct. And God's used and morphed that kind of competitive, ambitious drive to things that he can use for his glory. I mean, even at Cornerstone, when we talk to our staff, our values are we are an authentic, ambitious family. And ambitious, not in the sake of like selfish ambition, but ambitious in this idea that we serve an absolutely great king and we dishonor a great king with small dreams. So we're trying to dream big for what God could do with our life. That, that sort of holy ambition, I want all of you guys to have with your life. But there's a sort of selfish ambition that tonight in Daniel chapter 4 and 5, I think we're going to see in two kind of kings who are like the twin towers of pride. And I think it's not just in their example. I think you're going to see it if you look in the mirror in your life. All of us have a deep temptation to have seeds of pride in our life that we need to kill tonight. Because if there's anything we know, it's that God opposes the proud, but he'll give grace to the humble. So the question I want you asking all of tonight is, am I a person who has the seeds of pride in my life, and what can I do to cultivate humility? Because if God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble, then you want to be in the category of the humble, right? You want to cultivate humility because humility will be your best friend and pride will be your greatest enemy. So the... This story tonight, Daniel chapter 4 and 5, we have the twin towers of pride, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. They're going to be a picture of what pride looks like. We'll look quickly at their story, and then we'll look at those two points. We'll kind of break them into two sections. God opposes the proud. Section 1, God gives grace to the humble. So first, let's look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. They're going to teach us God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And what I'm going to do is rather than just reading all the verses in Daniel 4 and 5, I'm going to tell you both the stories. We'll dip in from time to time the verses, but just track with me. The first one, chapter 4, literally starts with this guy writing it, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth. So the writer of this, this is like a firsthand journal account of King Nebuchadnezzar's journey through pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a king of Babylon, and he has this weird dream. It's a dream about a supernaturally tall tree. And this tree ultimately gets chopped down to the ground, representing this great king who, when he's chopped down, ultimately is going to lose his mind to become like an animal. Nebuchadnezzar, in other words, is going to have a psychotic break from reality. And instead of thinking of himself like the great king of Babylon, the most powerful ruler in all the world that he is, he's going to think he's like a dog. Well, he doesn't know that yet because he gets a weird dream, and he's like, that messed me up. I need to know something about this. He calls his magicians in. They do a couple magic tricks, but they can't interpret the dream. And ultimately, he calls in Daniel. And I want you to look now. We're going to jump into it. Verse 24. Daniel chapter 4, verse 24. Where the king calls Daniel in, and he says, I need to know what this thing is about. Well, verse 24 says this. This is the interpretation, O king, your majesty. This is the interpretation. This is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You'll feed on grass like cattle. You'll be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time. And here's the key phrase, until you acknowledge the Most High as ruler over human kingdoms. And he gives them to anyone he wants. See, that's Nebuchadnezzar's problem. He thought, I built my own kingdom. I'm a great guy. 
I'm the king over all kings. He needed to acknowledge the Most High is actually the true ruler. Verse 26, as for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots. That's a picture he had in his dream. The tree chopped down, but the stump there. Your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourselves from the sins you're doing by doing what is right. From your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. We're going to come back to that. But that's a symptom of pride right there. That you have great resources that you spend only on you. Perhaps they would be an extension of your prosperity. So does Nebuchadnezzar repent? Daniel comes to him and says, God's going to chop you down, Nebuchadnezzar. What does he do? Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, and he exclaimed, Is not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You'll feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. And he gives to anyone what he wants. And at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. God opposes the proud. I'm going to just underline, God opposes the proud. That, that doesn't, it doesn't say God just watches the proud. It says he fights against them. He's actively engaged against the proud, and that's what happens right here. Nebuchadnezzar, acknowledge me, and instead he goes, no, it's my majestic glory that needs to be honored. So God opposes the proud, and Nebuchadnezzar is left mindless like an animal. Until verse 34, at the end of those days, I looked up to heaven. My sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There's no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, my majesty, my majesty, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors, my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom. Even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens. Because his works are true and his ways are just, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. Okay, so that's twin tower of pride number one, King Nebuchadnezzar. That's chapter four. Chapter five, there's a second king. This guy is named Belshazzar. So Belshazzar, he's the ruler following Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the setting of chapter five of Daniel. Belshazzar is having a drunken, crazy feast giant king party where he's just boozing it up with a whole bunch of people. And in the midst of this drunken festival, in order to come exalt himself even further, he's proving to people, you know, I've conquered a lot of people. We've conquered a lot of lands. In fact, I have all the storehouses from the temple in Jerusalem here. In fact, let's bring it out 
Let's pour some booze into the, the temple glasses from God's temple in Jerusalem, and let's drink that stuff up. So they bring it in, and they're basically, presently, he's saying, the Lord God of Israel doesn't matter. I drink my alcohol out of his holy things. He's defiling what God has said is sacred. And in that moment, there appears a hand. Right? Have you ever heard the phrase like that it, there's handwriting on the wall? You know, like there's a vision coming, the handwriting's on the wall. This is going to happen. That's from this text, Daniel chapter 5, where there's literally a hand that writes on the wall these four words, mine, mine, tekel, parson. And obviously, he's freaked out. I imagine at first he's like this, but he's, you know, because they've been drinking a lot. Like, do you see that right now? Because I think this is real. And they're like, I see that too. Wow. This, what are we drinking? You know, and then, they, but they figure out, this is like real handwriting on the wall. So they need to figure out what these four words mean. So what do they do? They call for Daniel again in verse 17. He interpreted things for Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to do the same for Belshazzar. And in verse 17, let's jump into Daniel chapter 5. It says, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts and your awards given to someone else, but I'll read this inscription and make the interpretation known to you. Your majesty, the Most High gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness that God gave him, all peoples, nations, and language were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted. He kept alive anyone he wanted. He was exalted anyone he wanted. He humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted... And his spirit became arrogant and proud. He was disposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken from him. He basically says, hey, do you remember that? Verse 22, jump down there. But you, Belshazzar, you saw God do that to Nebuchadnezzar. You haven't humbled your heart. Even though you knew all of that, Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and you, your nobles, wives, and concubines, drank wise wine from them. You praised gods made of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which don't hear, see, or understand, but you haven't glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hands, who controls the course of your whole life. Therefore, he sent a hand. And the writing was ascribed. This is the writing. Mine, mine, tekel, and parson. And the message is this. Mine means that God has numbered. The word means number. He's numbered the days of your kingdom, brought it to him. Tekel is a, a weighing instrument of coins. It means you've been weighed, Belshazzar, and found deficient. Perez, parson, means your kingdom will be parsed and given to the Medes and the Persians. Divide it up. Belshazzar gave an order. They clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself in his glory. God crushes him takes his mind from him. Belshazzar exalts himself in his glory, drinking at the party out of the holy, sacred things, and God crushes him. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Okay, so 
the Resach, we're just going to simply take that phrase and say, you have two stories about that. In learning from their stories, you don't want to be Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. You want to be like humble Daniel. You want to know God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what I want to do is just break that up and say, let's talk about what it means for God to oppose the proud first and try to apply that. How can we kill pride in our life? And then secondly, if God gives grace to the humble, how can you cultivate humility in your life? How can I kill pride? How can I cultivate humility? Let's talk first about killing pride because God opposes the proud. There's nothing God hates more than pride. Years ago, I read a book by a guy named C.J. Mahaney called Humility, True Greatness. It changed my life. And honestly, a lot of the illustrations I get are from there. So if you want a better talk on humility, just literally get that book. It's, it's great. I want to acknowledge that. John Stott, at the beginning of that book, there's a quote that says this. At every stage of our Christian development and every spirit of our Christian discipleship, Pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. If you're a note taker, that's the phrase I want you to write. Pride is my greatest enemy, and humility is my greatest friend. Why is pride a great enemy? Because pride is more than just one of a list of sins that God hates. When he lists out, even in the book of Proverbs, the seven deadly sins, the seven deadly sins begin with this one, the proud... or. The proud man's haughty eyes, arrogant proud eyes, are the top of God's list of the things that he says. There's seven sins, or indeed seven that I hate. Pride is at the top of the list of what God hates. Proverbs 8, verse 13. Here's what it says. I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he'll not go unpunished. I want you to think about some things you hate. Is there any like Thanksgiving foods that you hate? My big, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a big fan. I like all Thanksgiving foods. I feel like, but I'm not a big fan. I cook Thanksgiving meal now, and I don't know if you guys know this, but when you buy a turkey, they put like all its guts and its neck and crud. They stuff that inside the frozen turkey. Did you know that? I didn't. The first time I tried to cook a turkey, I didn't remove it, and it was a long story because it's like a plastic bag holding all its neck guts and disgusting crud, and you have to reach your hands in there and grab that stuff, guys, and I'm not into that. I hate that. I don't like, like fishing. I was down in Florida last week. We went fishing. One of my friends caught a, caught a shark, literally. I know, right? Impressive friends that I have in this world. And it's a small shark. It's like two or three feet. But let's just act like it was a giant shark. It's like a great white freaking crazy. And so they, we really shark, and the guy, the guy on the boat goes, hey, Mark, do you want to touch this? I go, oh, my gosh, no, it's a fish. Gross. Because I hate touching fish flesh. I don't fish because I don't want to touch. Like the idea of handling a fish. Yeah. Oh, it's just disgusting. So you can imagine like Thanksgiving turkey. I love Thanksgiving turkey, but I hate just reaching into the body cavity, which, uh, that, which it feels defiling the bird. Like I'm, I'm kind of like just going, you know, it feels like I'm invading his space in a way. Like I didn't, I, I'm so sorry I didn't ask permission, but I just, you're dead anyways, so you can't feel this. So here come your guts. Oh, gross. And I start thinking about that. Half the time I do it, I start like dry heaving in my kitchen. like... Oh, yeah. I'm going to die. I hate it. I hate Thanksgiving turkey gut feels. Thanksgiving turkey gut feels. That's not even a sentence. I, you guys are well-educated people. I'm from Iowa. 
I hate Kansas basketball and Rick's self and his deal with Satan that he made to be so good and cheat. As an Iowa State fan, just can't stand it. I can't. I hate it when people cook chicken and they serve it to you with it slightly raw in the middle. And you don't know till you bite down. No thank you, Salmonella. No thank you. I hate that. I don't know what you hate. Get a little more serious. I hate um, injustice and bone-crushing poverty. My sister served as seven years, seven years as a missionary in Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world. I would go visit her, and you would just see injustice. I just hate it. What do you hate? You and I hate nothing to the degree that God hates pride. Nothing. Why does God hate pride? Because the universe has a point, and it's not you. It's not me. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not Belshazzar. The universe has a point. The universe has a star to the show. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. God doesn't share glory. God doesn't. This world exists. It says in the Bible, the heavens declare the glory of God. Every star in the sky says God's great. That's what they preach all day long, without ceasing, forever. They're angelic beings who exist in the heavens. That All they exist to say is holy, 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 holy. The greatest being you would ever see in your life, the sort of thing that you would pee your pants if you saw it because you'd be so freaked out, that being's sole perfect purpose of existence is to say three words repetitively for eternity because God's so great, holy, 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 holy is all he can say. The universe exists to make much of that God, not of you. The heavens do not declare your glory. They declare God's. And it was designed that way. Like if a universe, if everything that's ever been created was like a movie, you're not the star of that movie God is. You're like the bit character in a big, huge battle scene in Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm talking about, Lord of the Rings? There's a new one out. Isn't there Rings of Power? Amazon Power, I don't know, it's something about, something about hobbits and crud. And so there's this, if it, you guys ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Or maybe like the end of Marvel, like the Infinity War, the final fight scenes. You know where there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out, you know, doing battle? You ever wondered how, you, how they put together? Like how, how do you recruit like a thousand people? to dress up like weird orcs and junk and just like ride on horses and stuff in New Zealand or wherever they shoot these battle scenes. It's an epic thing. I want you to imagine that you're in the scene, right? You're one of the guys. You're horse rider number 147. And you tell your friends, listen, man, I'm in Lord of the Rings. I'm a pretty big deal. You print up T-shirts, guy who was in Lord of the Rings. You introduce yourself. Yeah, hey, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food? I don't really know, but I was in Lord of the Rings. Boom, shake your hand. Feel like you're touching. You want to kiss the ring? Get uh, Lord of the Rings. I was in it. I was in Lord of the Rings. That's how you introduce yourself. You walk around saying you're Lord of the Rings, and you take one of your friends. You say, "Do you want to see where I was? You want to see me in Lord of the Rings?" And they, you've been talking so much about you being in stupid Lord of the Rings. They think like you must be Frodo or at least Gandalf or something cool. You show up at the theater, and they're just waiting, 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 and you get to that giant epic battle scene at the end, and all the dudes on the horses start coming down, and you go, oh, hang on for it, and boom, there I was. I was, you see me? I was in Lord, and then the scene's gone. 
You never make it in. Just this one, like, two-second blip where you're on the screen in Lord of the Rings. You're rider number 147. You're not Gandalf. So why in the world do so many of us deep down in our hearts think actually life is really about us? Think of how much time you spend thinking about you versus God. Think about you versus others. We're riding around in our lives thinking we're Gandalf when we're rider number 147. There's a star to this show of the universe. It is not you. It is not me. It is God. And the purpose of your life is not to draw attention to the blip that you have on the screen, but to use every moment of the blip you have on the screen to say he's the star. That's the point of your whole life. Why does God hate pride? Because he's God and you're not. And I want you to know that he's not just annoyed with pride. We're not going to come back to Daniel. So if you want in your Bible, you can flip to the book of James. I want you to see this phrase I keep saying, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's a Bible verse. It's James chapter 4. Verse 6. James 4, verse 6 says, He gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud. God opposes the proud. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I want you to notice that. It doesn't say God just looks at the proud people and thinks, oh, proud. You know, like he hates it, but he doesn't do anything about it. No, it says he opposes it. That means God has an active stance fighting back against things that are proud. He will crush Nebuchadnezzar. He chops him down to nothing. He will rip the kingdom away from Belshazzar. That's not just God looking at pride and standing idly by. That means every proud moment you're compiling for yourself active opposition from the king of heaven. God opposes the proud. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I a proud person? How would you know? Well, here's a couple tests. First off, there's obvious ones. Like you talk about yourself in the third person. You know, yeah, Mark's having a pretty good time tonight, you know. And he's, people are like, well, who's Mark? Well, Mark, the big dog, you know. Okay, you got, you got an issue. You need to chill. If that's you, if you're like into that sort of thing, I don't want to embarrass you, but that's just messed the heck up. Don't do that stuff. That's just messed up. Or like if you're a social media influencer, just period, you have a problem with pride, okay? It's period. Yeah, I'm a pretty big TikTok influencer. Okay, yep, there you go. Bingo bongo. God opposes that, all right? God opposes TikTok influencers. But he gives grace to the humble. Humble. Humble people are still on Facebook. Yeah, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. That's just a shout out to my grandma. All right, so... So there's obvious stuff, okay? There's obvious reasons, people, ways we can see it. But here's some more subtle and more serious ones that you see from the pattern of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Let me give you five of them. You are taking way too much credit for your successes. Nebuchadnezzar says, look at my kingdom that I built with my hands. Here's a second one. You're unaware that you're alive because of the moment-by-moment grace of God. Nebuchadnezzar is praising himself, never acknowledging the king of heaven. Third one. Here's a test to see if you're proud. What happens when you get power? 
Do you use your authority to bless yourself and push down people? Like you're actively angry at the people you lead and you judge them. Here's a fourth test. Are you generous Are you generous with your resources? It says Nebuchadnezzar ignored the needy. Here's a fifth one. You disrespect sacred things. You, you treat them like a game. You play the Christian game, but you're not broken before the Creator. Those are some more subtle tests. Here's the one I want to challenge you to do. This is a hard one. In fact, it'll humble you to do it. I want you to find somebody who knows you well, and, who, and you give them complete honesty card. Like, whatever they say to you, you're not going to get ticked and hate them. Okay? We all cool? You got it? All right. Here's what you do. You go to somebody who you respect, who knows you well, and you simply ask them this question. Do you think I'm a proud person? Or maybe you could say this, because I think the disease of pride is, pride is pretty thick among us. Ask them this question. Where are the symptoms of pride showing up in my life right now? Because if God opposes the proud... I have to kill pride. Help me do war against that sin. So if God opposes the proud, what's the second part? God gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, verse 2. We're going to talk about cultivating humility. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says this. This is the one to whom I'll look. The God of heaven looks. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You, with a humble spirit and trembling at God's word, can draw the attention of the creator of the universe. He's not impressed by powerful politicians. He's not impressed by 4.0 grades, even though I hope you get those December study hard guys. He's impressed by humility. God thinks humility is beautiful. Humble people draw his eye. He is aware of everything, but he is searching for one thing in particular in all the universe. God is searching for humble people. He gives grace to the humble. There's two things you need to know about humility before we go further. Humility isn't about devaluing yourself. Humble people don't say, I'm worthless. Worthless, I'm worthless, isn't a statement of humility. It's a statement of self-hatred. It's disparaging an image bearer because God made you in his image. He gave you value. Humility isn't devaluing yourself. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's about thinking of ourselves less. Second thing you need to know about humility, humility doesn't tell, mean you quit your life and quit doing anything good for fear you might be proud. Some of you guys are awesome at stuff. Like, let's just imagine, like, like me, you're incredibly awesome at just tons of sports stuff. This is a joke. That's a joke. That's like a self-deprecating. Whatever. I'm 40. You can't be good at anything in sports at 40, okay? But let's just say you're an incredible athlete. Humility doesn't mean you go, man, I'm an incredible athlete. I might be tempted to be proud by being awesome at stuff, so I'm going to quit everything I'm good at at life to be humble. You know? No. That's not it. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. God didn't tell Nebuchadnezzar, give up the kingdom. God told Nebuchadnezzar, acknowledge that I gave you the kingdom. Okay? 
You don't get humble by quitting your life. You get humble by inviting God into it. Acknowledge that God gave you those gifts. Honor him in it. Power and ability aren't the problem. Pride is. So pride is not solved by getting rid of power and ability. It's solved by acknowledging the God who gave them to you. So if those two kings are a picture of pride, what does humility look like? If you're over in the book of James, I want you to turn back just a couple books to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Simply going to read a passage that tells us what humility looks like. Humility looks like Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Adopt in you the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, who's God himself, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. It's just used for his own benefit. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, because of that humility... God highly exalted him. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, honor, favor, exaltation to the humble. God has highly exalted him, and he has given him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice this, the pathway for exaltation for Jesus was through humiliation. The pathway to the kingdom came through the cross. The pathway to greatness came by being a servant because Mark 10 says the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many, which means Jesus didn't just come to be served by you as a great king of heaven. The great king of heaven came to serve you. That's humility. Jesus didn't come to be helped by us. He came to help us when we were helpless. And in the greatest selfless, humble act of all time, the truly great king, a king greater than Nebuchadnezzar, a king greater than Belshazzar, was lifted up not to a throne but to a cross. He wasn't crowned with the jewels and gold that he deserved, but was crowned with thorns. He was showered not with adulation and worship, but with spit and mockery. He wasn't clothed with the robes of a king. He was stripped naked and crucified in utter humiliation because that's what humility looks like. So look at a humble king to teach you what humility is. If the twin towers of pride are King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, King Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. God opposes the proud, but that humble man is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is what humility looks like. Pursue becoming like him. So how can you cultivate that sort of humility? I'm going to close by rapid fire giving you seven ways to cultivate humility and kill pride. I won't go long on them. Seven ways. If at every stage pride is our great enemy and humility is our greatest friend, how do you kill pride and cultivate humility? Here's Tool number one, seven tools to help you cultivate humility. Tool number one is this, look at the cross of Jesus regularly. It's an old hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, 
upon which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Carl Henry, famous theologian, once said, how can anyone be arrogant when they stand at the foot of the cross? I put him there. My sins on his shoulders. Nothing crushes pride like a crucified Savior. Contemplate the cross. Your second one. Go to bed. No, literally, go to sleep. Think of this, guys. You know that sleeping is the activity that you will do the most of in your whole life. Think about how unproductive that is, how utterly unimpressive. The, the, the thing you do more than anything else in your entire existence on earth, it looks like this. You drool while you do it. Spiders crawling inside your mouth. You're swallowing them inadvertently. That's an urban legend, by the way. That's not actually true. You're not swallowing many spiders. You are going to spend approximately a third of your life dead asleep in your bed. And yet, listen to this. God is the creator who never sleeps, never slumbers. Every night when you lay your head on your pillow, you are doing something that God never needs to do because he's God and you're not. Sleep is a daily admission that you are not the creator, but that you depend on him. So here's what I want you to do. Right when you lay your head down, I've started doing this. I lay my head down on my pillow and I go, God, I am now making a the universal confession as one of your creatures that I am not and never will be God. Now give me sleep. Now fall asleep. It's pretty good. Number three. Number three way to cultivate humility. Go to big places in nature. No one stands at the edge of the Grand Canyon and goes, I'm the king of the world. You know what you do when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon? You back up because that's freaky, man. It's like so far down. No one goes to the edge of the ocean and feels big. Get to an ocean or a mountain in Iowa, get to a not get out of the state of Iowa, go to something awesome. And just get small by being in nature. Number four. Number four way to st- cultivate humility. Closely study God. Let me just read you one quote from R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, about the difference between you and God. The grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God has always existed. God does not need me in order for him to be. I need God in order for me to be. The difference between what we can call a self-existent and dependent being is precisely that. We are dependent. We are fragile. We can't live without air, without water, without food. No human being has the power of being within himself. Life for us is lived between two hospitals. We need a support system from birth to death to sustain our life. We're like flowers that bloom, that wither, that fade. This is how we differ from God. God never withers. God never fades. God is not fragile. Study God and you'll feel small. Fifth way to cultivate humility. Confess your sins to one another. It's really hard to be proud when you're owning the worst parts of you to other people regularly. Sixth, 
Make it a point to constantly encourage others. You cultivate humility not by thinking less of yourself, but by thinking less, not by thinking less of yourself, but by thinking about yourself less. And the best way I know to think about yourself less is to think about others first. It's really hard to be thinking about yourself while you're complimenting someone else, while you're praising the grace of God in them. Become a student of the incredible grace of God in other people. Like, Abby, when I think about Abby Bang, I, I've known Abby since she was in high school. My wife is a camp counselor for that girl. Okay, so like, when I think of the grace of God that's shown up in her, it's just remarkable. It's so fun to see God's grace flowing through her. You want to cultivate humility? Just study the grace of God at work and people around you. Look at them, not at you. Here's the seventh way. We'll close here. Suffer. Suffer. You don't have to pursue suffering. I'm not saying, like, take your coat off, go run around in the <laughs> You know, no. That's a way to cultivate, you know, frostbite or something. The truth of the matter is, though, to quote Don Carson, all we have to do is live long enough and we'll suffer. See, here's what suffering reminds you. Suffering reminds you that you don't control everything in your life, that you need God to sustain you through it. So the most humbling thing in my life this past year, guys, to be transparent with you, at Cornerstone this summer on the first summer salt company that we had, there was a jealous boyfriend who came into our parking lot and ended up murdering his girlfriend, who was a salt company leader, one of her best friends, uh, who was there with her, and uh, then turned the gun on himself, taking his own life. It happened five minutes before salt company started, as hundreds of students were flooding in. I happened to be on the property because we had an elders meeting that night, and so ran out with our elders, thinking what I was going to see was something vastly different than what I came onto. And as we ran out on June 2nd, it was the worst moment of my life, um, walking through that. Over the course of the next days and weeks and months, here's what I felt like. I felt completely out of control. I went home that night, and I laid down next to my wife, and my body just was physically trembling. Like when you're in a, you ever heard of fight or flight, right? What that means is your body floods with so much adrenaline, you don't know how to control it. So you're out of control. I couldn't control anything. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was freaked out everywhere I went. I didn't enjoy Fourth of July at all because fireworks sound a lot like gunshots. And I had this constant realization that I was not in control because the one thing that I know I've done that's pure for God is salt company. And the one group of people that I want to protect the most in the world is those students, and I couldn't do anything. It was really hard, really hard. And so daily, here's what would happen. This is literally the day after. Solomon Rexius, the director of salt, and I had to go through, do these funerals, lead these people through. And we had a staff meeting where we were trying to help people learn how to wrestle through. We had these trauma counselors who came in. They were the grace of God to us. They helped us so much. 
And Saul would start saying, we had an agenda we were sharing. Saul would start the agenda out, and then he would start weeping and couldn't go forward. So then I'd stand up, and I'd pick up where he left off until I started weeping and couldn't go forward. Then Saul would have it together enough to pick back. We literally, for two weeks, led staff meetings where I couldn't stop crying. And it was not like a tear. It was like the sort of weeping I couldn't stop. I couldn't breathe. I'd never experienced anything like that. And here's, here's what happened. In the middle of the worst of the worst of the worst, there's this old Puritan line that says, sometimes the stars shine the brightest on the darkest nights. Sometimes the light shines the brightest into the darkness. And every time I was laid as low as I could go, here's what I would say. God, I have nothing, so you're going to have to carry me. And God opposes the proud, but you know what he does for people who are laid low, who have nothing left? He gives grace to the humble. So maybe for you, you're going through a really, really hard time. You may not have any control over anything, but the one thing you can do is humble yourself before God. And God's eyes will go to you. He'll move toward the humble, right? So you guys, tonight, I'm sharing with you what I think God has been working in my life since I failed elementary school PE, which is this constant reminder, Mark, you are not, you never will be God. And I'll oppose the proud, but I'll give grace to the humble. So salt company, hear me. Cultivate humility and kill pride. Don't be like King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar. Be like King Jesus. Set his perfect, humble example before you and become a sort of humble people here in Salt Company. God's eyes will move toward that because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I'm going to pray for you guys. God, for this room, I pray your grace on them. This room is a grace to me. What an encouragement to see your work here in them. And I pray it would be fresh and rich and real. And God, in any ways that these students see pride in their life, oh God, give them the courage to kill pride, to cultivate humility, to move toward you. God, make us aware of pride where it shows up. Show it to us glaringly so that tonight we can set it aside and move toward you. God, that, it, we don't want anything in the way of saying with open hands to you, God, here we are. We're yours. We want to move toward you, God. And so, God, have your way in us. Cultivate in us a heart of humility and kill in us any, any shred of pride. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.